Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show, presented by The Big Lead. Okay, here is the plan for today. I'm going to start off talking about postseason baseball, the majesty of it all, the artistry, the way it's presented, and why it's the perfect canvas for something that I really enjoy monitoring that I want to mention that I think would overall improve your enjoyment of these broadcasts. I'm going to throw it out there, explain why this is the best time of year for sports television directing for the art of live sports television as a production. But then after all that nonsense, we've got a great guest today. The ringers, Brian Curtis. He's a person that I really admire his work and the way he's so balanced. I'm constantly impressed by how balanced he is as a reporter, as a writer, as a podcaster, and the even keeledness with which he presents himself, um, but not afraid to, you know, tap into the emotions of things and also have a little fun, which I think is is really awesome when someone's that well-rounded. Uh, he came on and we got real nerdy. <laughs> Just a warning there. We get pretty inside inside baseball in a segment we're calling even more inside baseball. I got his thoughts on some pretty specific elements of what he does, this industry, and, and where we think it might be going. Uh, it was a great conversation. I was so happy to have him on. Hopefully, he'll come back because that was great. But now, I want to talk about baseball. And this time of year, October, there's nothing better than the do or die stakes. This is the best time for baseball. This is when it matters most. This is October, super special. And the product on the field is so great. Any of us who love this game, we feel it in our bones and we feel it in all our joints and maybe all the cells of our body, just the tension between pitches does not get any better kind of the slow burn of it all where one split second can change everything. Uh, it's just fantastic as a human experience. And along with that goes the always exciting presentation, both on Fox, TBS, MLB network, anything, obviously some outlets do it better than others. The way in which these games are delivered to us is just so cool. I'm just now beginning to understand live sports television of an event is kind of a high wire act. It's presenting a feature length movie, if not longer, something, a classic like Titanic 
or Lawrence of Arabia or something that just has an obscene runtime. You're doing that live. You're doing that with one shot at it. You don't get to choose. You don't get to go back and make those choices retroactively like you do when there is time to edit. You have to make them in the moment and a team has to work together to add this rich tapestry, the, the art of the presentation. And I've been lucky enough to spend time in a few production trucks, talk to the people who produce and coordinate these events. And if you think you love sports and you think that you have half a, half a mind to care about the media around it. This is like, this is the ultimate. You, you kind of see inside the brain of what brings us all the pictures of sports. It's just the best. It's so fast. It's so furious. These people are so skilled at what they do, which is something that you don't even notice if it's done well. But the next time you're watching a game, really think about this. I think that the simple thing to do is to consider the play-by-play people and the analysts, the stars of the show, but really they are just the voice of the show. And the show is more than just the words that are being said to you on the podcast, This, like this podcast, which doesn't have moving pictures for you to look at, which stimulates so much more of your brain. And what an opportunity is for them to use the sport of baseball, which has these prolonged and pregnant pauses between deliveries. It moves slow, too slow, some people think. But all that downtime gives so much time to think. And it gives fans so much time to agonize publicly. The reaction shots we know are at their absolute apex for postseason baseball. And the emotions on the players too, and this is every sport, it's not specific to baseball, but, and you don't really get that a lot in the regular season. There's not these, they usually don't go hunting for these reaction shots, at least on the local broadcast, it's not really the same, but man, you know, and the postseason brings a different element and a different emotion out of everybody. But man, the next time one of these is on, think of all the times that it goes to a different camera shot. And, and you'll notice how fast it moves. And then you'll notice all the moving graphics on the screen. The things that just magically happen at home for the viewer are done by people and they're done with no room for error, any mistake is gonna be screen grabbed and preserved forever. And yet 99.9% of the time, they just provide a pleasant looking thing that you never notice. You never notice any mistakes. They make it as easy as possible, but there's so many choices to be made. And, and the difference in the production is what, what camera, what feed they choose to go with because that's how it's permanently preserved in your mind because that's how you saw it the first time.
it's sport at its finest and it's really television at its finest as well. And, and the combination is, is just, just so enjoyable. So as we welcome in Brian Curtis, editor at large at The Ringer and co-host of the Press Box podcast, I've said a lot of nice things about you. I really mean them. In a lot of ways, I feel like you're the best case scenario for me in the industry. So I've kept <laughs> oh, a careful God. and watchful eye on you to see what I need to do next. Oh, man. Um, well, we both need to reevaluate our priorities uh, right now, if that's the case. But thank you. Thank you for doing for saying that. And uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to ask if that made you sad or if that made you happy. And it sounds like it's a mixed no. bag. No, no, it, it makes me happy. I, I appreciate it greatly. So I asked you to come up with the plot of the movie Editor at Large, uh, which I think is a great title and could go a lot of different directions. So what do you think such a motion picture would look like? Well, it's not going to be a Marvel movie. Uh, let's put it that way. And if you're looking at my backdrop, not quite a Wes Anderson movie here, you know, house isn't designed enough for that. You know, I was thinking kind of a low key comedy of manners, maybe, uh, you know, interactions with my podcast host, with my podcast producer, uh, with my family, of course, with my editors at the ringer, um, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of making sure that the zoom doesn't sound too scratchy. Just all, just all the kind of, you know, foibles of modern journalistic life. I'm not and sure I have much to add beyond that. It's not much of a plot. No, no. I was thinking, you know, we could turn it into like a money ball situation where you go from newsroom to newsroom looking for market inefficiencies. But what you discover through the process is what really makes the difference is the people. So that puts Ooh. you at odds with management, the cold, soulless entity that's trying, you know, probably a hedge fund trying to squeeze everything out, sell it off for parts. And you're the one who stands up in the way, but that puts you on the wrong side and in their targets. And thus you have to move through several different markets. I like this. I like this. So they're, they're looking at like, you know, ratings, micro ratings for, you know, various segments of first take and market testing everything. And I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't matter. What matters is the person on television, the person writing the story. Yeah, no, I can, I can get on that soapbox. Who would play you in a movie though? So that, that's a weird one because I've never been compared to an actor. I've had zero, zero comps in that department. The only person I've been compared to looks wise, and this is harrowing on like nine levels, is Adrian Wojnarowski at at least two or three. And I, I number one, I decided we both need a new stylist uh, if that's the case. But one, I was at ESPN one time and I was interviewing somebody and they looked at me and they're like, you know who you look like? You look like Woj. <laughs> I was like, okay. Kind of a funny way to start the interview. Anyway, I don't know if, I don't know if he's available. But Well, uh, uh, Halloween's coming up. And it seems like a, I don't know if they're going to be running out of Squid Game costume. <laughs> yeah, uh, I might, maybe more, maybe more uh, Peter Pan or the Wizard of Oz at the Curtis household. But uh, I'll run the idea up the flagpole. So I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to get even more inside baseball because we both kind of have the proclivities of being interested in the minutia, I think, but I kind of wanted to start like, you know, the job of a sports media reporter or a media critic or someone who kind of is following other journalists and at least trying to assess the work and relay that to an audience requires deciding what that audience is. And it's not necessarily 
a mass market audience. Not everybody is interested in this. On your podcast the other day, you and your co-host David were talking about something that you were looking up information about ESPN and were distracted by the related queries. And it was like, ESPN salaries, who's that lady on ESPN? Whereas maybe 90% of the people who are looking for information are just looking for that bare bones. So through that lens, how do you approach your audience when you write and then also for your podcast? I think with writing, the way I've always thought about it is the audience is sports fans. Now, obviously other people read The Ringer, other people read Grantland before that. But I think if you think of it as sports fans, you actually get a pretty general generalist audience. And then it's up to you to explain to them why these stories are interesting. And I don't really think it's that hard. It's funny because you always hear the complaint. It's usually from journalists. It's never from readers. It's from journalists about navel gazing and media stories and those big bad media reporters who are just so annoying and all that stuff. And I always think like, wait a second, a lot of the, the people I write about are more popular, at least in the Twitter way, than a lot of people that are playing sports. You know, I mean, that's, they, you know, there's, they're giant figures in television or whatever. So, so it's not that hard to convince them, but I think it is up to us to convince them. And I will say the one thing I always swear not to do, I, maybe I made this mistake or have made this mistake is that the audience should not be people who work for sports television networks. That's, that's where the beat goes to die when you're writing for just people in the industry rather than writing for sports fans at large, I think. Because then it just becomes all inside baseball. It becomes this, this scale you're grading on, you know, things that people just don't understand. And, and I, would, I would really want to stay away from that. What are some traps you can fall in, you think, when you start to write only for that small audience? <laughs> well, you just, I think you're worried about things you, you, you see me going on on Twitter about like ratings and things like that. You're writing about measurements like that without explaining to, again, normal sports fans why those are important. Like the one we had the other day was Bucks Patriots. And there's this whole runway beforehand about what, how many people are going to watch the Bucks Patriots game. And I'm sitting there going, why does this matter? Look, what, what we know football is popular. We know Tom Brady going back to New England is going to be a really popular example of football. So what's the difference between 23 million, 24 million, 25 million? And if somebody could explain that to me, if somebody could go in and say, well, if NBC gets this, then this will happen that will affect the broadcast next year or the broadcast in two weeks or you know the future of sports media rights or, or whatever it is then great explain that to me you you tell me why that extra million plus or minus really makes a difference but if you can't explain it to me then you certainly can't explain it to sports fans and then you're just telling people that something is important <laughs> that may actually not be important yeah i wonder if there was like a plague hit the earth and fingers weren't allowed to type about ratings, if there'd be a great clamoring from the public that happened, hey, what happened to all that content? Or if we kind of gotten into the habit of, hey, here's a story we can write. We can That's write this story is. every single time. And it's, it's in the old reliable and it's a comfort food almost for on the work side. Well, again, and I think people inside the networks are paying attention to it, right? They, they certainly are monitoring how many people are watching. That's what television is and streaming is and all that stuff. 
So they're paying attention to it. But I think, and by the way, ratings are really old obsession. I mean, I've been reading and reading sports media columns since like the eighties and nineties and people were writing about it then when it came to games. Um, but I just think at some point, like part of the job is not just to write correctly and report correctly and all those kinds of things. It's just, it's to tell people what their priorities should be and what is interesting. And if you're turning this all into the, how many people will watch game again, without explaining to them what that means, why that's important. I think you're misleading them to some extent. And you're telling them that this number is really, really important when maybe it's not important. Maybe what's important is, is the game any good? Were the announcers that uh, you relied on to announce the game for you good? Like stuff like that. I had a college professor tell me, and this is about the time sports blogs were just starting about the time I was graduating college. And he asked what I wanted to do. And at that time, that was kind of like, felt a little like the punk rock thing to do. Like the, the counterculture thing was like, you don't have to be part of mainstream media. You can kind of go in there, cut the line, have more fun, do stuff like that. And he said, you know, I don't see you in that role because you care uh, too much about the game, about the sporting game. But I think that in the media game, it gets distilled down to numbers, like who won, who lost by network, where the story gets lost uh, mm -hmm. to the point where I'm more interested in the story. And it sounds like you're almost more interested in, in the story of media, media, not just kind of like the raw results. I think that's exactly right. We try to put a scoreboard onto everything because it's easier to do it that way than it is to dig in and explain something. So we put the rating scoreboard on a football game. How much does this media personality make and how much do they sign for becomes an overwhelming concern because it's, it, it's more complicated to do the other parts of the job, frankly. I mean, I was, and by the way, this is not just a sports thing, you know, movies, you know, when we become, when we sort of forget about is the movie any good and spend too much time on how much did the movie make? But at least in that case, you know, if it's a, if it's a Marvel sequel, how much it made probably has a pretty direct effect on whether another movie gets made or whether more Marvel movies get made. They're not going to cancel the NFL. <laughs> not going to cancel the Super Bowl if 99 million people watch it versus 101 million people watch it. Imagine if they did, though. I mean, that's a story. <laughs> now that's a story. You know, you mentioned earlier kind of like one of the critiques of media and certainly covering the media is that journalists are too self-serious. And especially when we look at our peers, we give it more gravitas than it deserves. And I think that that's definitely true. There's certainly a level of narcissism that comes with getting into this in industry to begin with and thinking that anybody should care what we think about XYZ announcer or story that's going on. But in what ways do you think it is important to kind of have a record of what's going on and someone who tries to tackle it from a fair point of view, like I think you probably view your role. Well, first of all, the people on the media beat did not invent narcissism in journalism. That, that, was, that was there from the start and would be going strong without any of us writing about any of this stuff. That's just, <laughs> that's a, that is a quality, not of all journalists, but of a lot of journalists. Let's just put it that way. Um, so why is it important? Well, um, I think there's for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think one is that, you know, first of all, there's just a lot of issues as we see every day when we're talking, when we're having insider week here in America uh, with, the, with the emails about how news is reported and the way people are gathering news. 
And what kinds of reporters are we? I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this week is we're kind of seeing not only like issues about how you report a story, but we're seeing issues about who are the people who are driving the train in sports media right now? Like what's happened in a world where we went from a world where columnists, you know, for better or worse, were the most powerful person at the sports page to a world where insiders were kind of the most powerful people, <laughs> only on the sports page or at ESPN, but seemingly in the universe at large. You know, what does that, what, how did that change those? How did that change the way we, we get information? You know, what are the compromises being made? So I, I just think there's 150 really important issues. And then I think there's just a bunch of sub issues that are really just interesting about the people doing this. Uh, you know, the way networks are changing, the way we, the way we watch things is changing as we move from the TV era into the streaming era, from the cable bundle era into the streaming era. I just think there's, you know, it's funny. I was, I never, I never feel that, that sort of, you know, that urge to justify the beat all that much, because I think it really does the work itself most of the time. And again, I don't hear, I rarely hear from readers, like, why are you wasting my time? Why are you doing this? That just doesn't, it doesn't really come. They complain about a lot of things, but I don't think that really comes up all that much. I kind of view it as a live history of sure. reporting of what's going on and what sensibilities were like and what things were popular. And I think someone who's just trying to get to the bottom of it and really use the media as a lens to tell like, well, what do we like as a society? And what does it say that this is the number one announcer, you know, like, but I wonder, I mean, I actually think that it, your podcast plays a valuable role for people who want to kind of understand and improve their media literacy, right? Because media literacy is, is a point that is a real problem and it's getting worse. And it takes people who care enough about trying to inform the public about how the job of journalism is done and how it's done properly and what the dangers of, of losing it can be. And I know that that all sounds high-minded and maybe a little too self-important for what's going on now, but I actually do think that there's an important role to be played by people who are willing to have honest and frank conversations about what the process should look like. No, I just think it's really hard to be media literate right now, right? Given the world we're dealt. I always know, I always talk about my uncles because I have uncles who are huge sports fans who have, you know, been ESPN watchers for four decades now, as long as there was ESPN, essentially. One of them has cowboy season tickets. And these are people that used to subscribe to newspapers. And now when they mail me important articles about the Dallas Cowboys, they're emailing me stuff from SB Nation or aggregator, random aggregator sites and go, hey, look at this. And, you know, when I think about them, they're not spent, you know, they're in this world where they're like, I want to get news. I want to get news about the thing I really care about. Um, I probably don't want to pay for it or I don't want to pay a ton for it. What do I do? Like, what, what's, what, what does this world look like? What is the world, you know, it used to be a world of newspapers and television and cable television and books. And now we're in this world where there, that stuff kind of still exists, but there's just all this other stuff out there. And should, you know, and a lot of times they're sending me stuff. It's like, is this real? Should I believe this? What's the deal with this? So, yeah, I, I just think, I think it's hard. I think it's really, really hard. What topic are you way more interested in than the average consumer? What is the like the real niche thing that really uh, gets your juices flowing to cover? Well, it's such a good question. I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know if there's like a big topic, I guess, because I just don't. Again, I sort of feel like we're I feel like collectively we're all kind of hitting 
we, we do hit all the, we hit, you know, all parts of the strike zone eventually, you know, perhaps there's some parts that are missing, but I can't think off the top of my head of something that's like, wow, I'm obsessed with this and nobody else cares because in most cases, other people are writing great stuff about it too. What are you completely disinterested in that others can't get enough of? Besides the ratings. <laughs> Besides the ratings. We all, we all know you're catching. Oh, our, I've already had my 20 minutes on the, on the ratings. I just think anything, you know, it's funny. I would, I, what I'll do is I'll just use the, the ratings thing and expand it out because I think I just, when we're talking about being inside, insiderdom, generally speaking, I just think our brains have been rewired kind of in a very, very weird way. And I think, you know, a lot of us are kind of hip to how it's happening and people are understand it and all that stuff. But I just think we have, we are so, so much of the product put out by ESPN and other people is trade rumors, signings that we were going to know about anyway. Um, we could do, by the way, the first version of this I saw was not on the sports beat, but was on the politics beat when Mike Allen was writing for Politico and having to go so fast and have this newsletter every morning. And eventually you run out of news and you start to get into kind of this weird post news product and you're giving it to people. Here's some more nuggets. Here's some more nuggets. Enjoy these nuggets. Enjoy these nuggets. And I'm not somebody who thinks, you know, that everything sucks and, you know, the world is awful and we should go back to the days of newspapers because I remember those days and they weren't that fantastic to begin with. We're much, we're much better off now in the aggregate, but I think the way the hierarchy of sports media has changed, the way the product, the daily second by second product is just really weird. It's really, really weird. And it's, it's weird that we should, that the most popular thing that should come out is an NBA player who doesn't start has signed with a team. Like <laughs> that's a, that's weird that that's like such a huge news item to me at some fundamental level. And yeah, I, it- I don't care about that as a, as much as clearly a lot of other people care about it. And I'd say the same thing for the NFL, whatever you want to say. You know, I think that really requires some investigation of why that is. Like, why did that become the thing? Like, is it, is it, is it valuable to the leagues? Are the leagues in some way like pushing and funneling and working together with partners to make transactions, which used to, I'm old too. I remember when they used to just be in the newspaper and in the, in the agates, you know, like now it's yeah. just like every, if it wasn't your team, you would be like, and it wasn't a huge superstar player. It would, it would, the, your, your news source would just assume that you didn't find it very interesting. You weren't going to be in on this. And again, I think a couple of things was so the why fantasy, obviously, which is a fairly legitimate reason. I think also that news is just perfectly manufactured for Twitter and social media. So, and it's a nice bite-sized nugget. It's easy to understand. Um, it also is, you know, it sort of helpfully makes basketball and in the NFL, a 12 month a year sport. We've had the hot stove league for a long time. It's a super old concept in sports writing, but essentially it's trying to solve the problem of sports writing, right? Which is that the season ends. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I do <laughs> if I'm a baseball, football, basketball writer? But what if I have this product in the off season that is, it turns out, at least when measured by like response, as are more interesting than some of the actual games that are played. Ah, well, I've solved my problem, right? I've become, I've become, I've made it a 12 month beat. Me and all the other writers in the sport are more valuable. I don't know. It's just, there's a whole host of reasons, I think. And fundamentally, when you 
can write about anything that could happen versus what did happen, you have a lot more breadth to pick sure. whatever it is, you know, and that opens it up that way. And the it's weird too, because, and, and I will kind of ask, I will, I'll, I'll throw my answer to this one because it's sort of related. I was fascinated that everybody else was so fascinated by stories exactly like that. It would be the NBA finals are going on, but everybody is clamoring for what's going to happen in free agency or what's going to happen next year if, or if the team is going to repeat. And we, this would be going on when there's a 3-2 series in the NBA finals. And it's like, hey, there's a pretty important game going on, but everybody's yeah. kind of looking at the shiny thing in the future. It's almost like the next dopamine hit. Yeah, what is what is the team that is playing right now? What are they going to do next year? What are they going to do in the offseason? Well, well, let's just do the season. And then we could do the offseason. No, I, I understand. And honestly, we should say gambling too when we talk about like why is this stuff important, especially when it comes to injury news, trade, stuff like that. That's obviously a huge part of it. Yeah, I'm out, I'm out on gambling and I'm out on crypto too. Uh, <laughs> can you tell me about a story that you look back on and, and still have tremendous pride that you were able to execute? And I know it's like asking someone their favorite kid or uh, favorite color of Skittles, you know, it's very personal, but, but is there one that stands out maybe based on the process or the way it was received or what it did for your career? You know, I was trying to think about this. Um, one thing that was just, that just came to mind, I don't know if it's like super being, I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to um, plug the story or replug the story, but 2017, I was at the ringer and I remember uh, going to my editor and it's like, what about a story about Jamel Hill? She seems really interesting. And I feel I don't know enough about her just having read the stuff that was out there. Like I've read her, I've seen her on television. She was doing the six on ESPN at the time. Um, and then, and you know, there was this just like utterly crazy social media reaction to her and to Michael Smith, a lot of which was just racist. And I just remember thinking like, like I wanna know more about this person. And I went to, I went to Bristol I followed her around for a day. We had dinner. We had a, we had a long, long conversations, talked more on the phone, I interviewed her mom, all that stuff. And then of course, in one of those moments that I did not plan for at all, Jamel then tweets about Donald Trump. I'm pretty sure I have the timing right here. Like two days before my story is about to, to be released or about to be published. And so now all of a sudden there is this enormously, enormous interest in the subject of who is Jamel Hill and let me learn more about Jamel Hill right as this story is about to come out. And I, and I don't, like I said, again, I don't, I'm just trying to, not trying to plug the story, but I think one thing it was for me that was happy about that was I think so much of what I'm always fighting to do is just trusting your instincts about things even when there's sort of not an obvious, you know, reason to trust them. It's just being like, trust your instincts sometimes. You know, I always think we think of journalism as like, oh, will my editor let me do this? Will my editor let me do it in the way that, you know, I can't, am I going to be able to report this story? Am I going to be able to get the interviews I need, the information I need? And all those are totally legitimate. But I'd add to that pile the idea of, am I going to trust my own instincts about what I think is interesting? And sometimes you're totally wrong. And sometimes you, you write something and it's like, well, that was, that was stupid. But I think the ones I've, I've been happiest with or most upset at is when I've trusted my instincts or abandoned my instincts. And, and that was one of the cases where it was actually the former and I was, I was happy after the fact. You seem like you take a tremendous amount of time and obviously 
it's incumbent on an editor to think about things before they happen, uh, to see the long view. And I wonder, I think that we really give short shrift to like story ideation. Like you have to have a good story. You can be an excellent writer and a good storyteller, but if the, if the subject material and in the, in kind of like your hook on it, what you're trying to do, if you put a ceiling on that, it can only be that good. But if you thought about it longer, like let's really, what is the idea here? What am I trying to say? How much of your writing is pre-planned where you go out and try to like basically tell the general idea uh, of your thesis and how much of, or, or is it more just like going out into the wilderness and bringing back what you've gathered and, and try to like <laughs> make something out of that? Going out into the sports media wilderness and gathering sustenance. Um, I guess it depends, you know, it depends. It honestly, it depends on how much time do you have, right? Do you have a long time to think about something or are you in a rush? And a lot of times you're in a rush. I don't know. It's like, I really used to resist trying to like actually write out an idea in multiple paragraphs to send to an editor. And now as I've gotten older, I've like volunteered to do that more times than not, because you really do. It really, to me, helps you kind of understand what's at stake in a story so that when you start reporting it, you know, you'll, you'll of course discover things and things you didn't know existed and, and sort of new little, little parts of it, but that you understand what the stakes of a story could be. What are the ideas behind it? You know, what would be an interesting way to kind of tell this and how much of that can I do in advance? Sometimes you just wind up doing a lot in advance and then you look at your original pitch and be like, well, that didn't turn out to be the same at all, or that was a dumb idea. But, um, but a lot of the times it, it's a really good roadmap. I think so. Yeah. And, and you also wind up just sharpening the idea a lot more and you wind up using it as a, as a roadmap to kind of go, go from there. Do you have a story that still stings because it didn't go well? <laughs> oh, there's so many, <laughs> how many to choose from? No, I'll just, I'll just tell you one. That's a, it's not, you know, one that I think the, the, that uh, stings too much, but it's the, it's the exact opposite of what we just talked about, which is, I remember a couple of years ago, now I'm going to confuse my years. This is 2018, 2019. I remember before the announcement that ESPN was going to shutter ESPN, the magazine as a print product, I was sitting around and I, and I said, and I was just thinking like, I would love to read a piece about ESPN, the magazine, which seems to have been just with us for a long time, which I have not read a bit, which has not, you know, been sort of over uh, analyze like SI or the New Yorker, all these more, you know, longer lived magazines. And like, what was the founding like? What was, what was interesting about it? What were its early years like versus the later years of Wright Thompson and Mina Kimes and Seth Wickersham when, you know, and uh, when they were just turning out story after story, Tom's, you know, um, all those people. And I called a bunch of people and I went to the stacks at the library and literally looked at, you know, those giant oversized ESPN magazines. And then I just sort of talked myself out of it. I was like, I don't think anybody cares about this. I just, maybe I'm the only person interested in this and this is just boring. And, um, and I just moved on to other things. And then like three months later, <laughs> they ended the magazine and it would have been, it would have been useful or interesting. I hope to have just some reminder about what was the whole point of this. What was it founded as? Where did it go to? Did it, you know, uh, get become a, a different thing or a bigger thing or a more important thing than it was intended to be? And it had a really interesting backstory. So, and I was just mad I took myself out of it. Yeah, I it and it's and it's interesting. You just you just never know, like you said, like the Jamel Jamel thing 
was like, well, there's going to be the most interest in this. And then you never know whether some piece, maybe you would have published like the week it was announced and you would have got like that incredible bump, but it's like, it's really hard to see the future uh, because like, you know, I mean, I'm sure like you don't even know what topics you guys are going to be discussing because it changes sometimes mid podcast, what the, what the big and prevailing story is and it can, and certain things can affect others. Totally. And there's the whole bump part of it, but there's also just the part of like, I would have liked to, it's interesting to answer this question, right. For myself, you know, to, to, I'm curious about it. And I think other people would be interested in it. And I could, you know, just answer a question. Like, what was, what was, what is, and then now was ESPN, the magazine. Do you think that we're still going to be making sports media writers? Um, <laughs> because is there a no next lab. coming? I know it's a very niche field uh, and it's, great to get paid to do it it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like work a lot of times uh but in a lot of ways it kind of feels like baseball to me uh you know i feel like i'm sort of the only one who's who's really interested and people are moving on to shinier objects plus it kind of seems like doing it without a particular slant or even an admitted agenda is not uh, a great way to make a lot of money so i'm just kind of curious what do you think the next 20 years in the space are, are going to look like? Well, it it's, I would say to go to our conversation earlier, it's important. We should, we should be, you know, this should be a job. We should be funding it. You know, if you look at the history of it, it has often been, especially at newspapers, the bottom of the totem pole job uh, on the sports page. You know, if you had your columnists and your league writers and your beat writers and keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay. We're almost now, we're now we're going to get to the outdoors writer and the rodeo writer and all that stuff. And then, and then you have the sports media writer. Sometimes it was a full-time person. A lot of times it was somebody on the desk who was doing it as their side job, essentially, you know, it was not a full-time gig. And by the way, kind of persists now, you know, I don't, I, I read the LA times every day out here and they certainly, they wind up covering lots and lots of beats and do a big, you know, big sports page product every day. And they don't have somebody dedicated to it. So to answer your question, I don't, I don't have a good sense of that. I don't think media stories will go away. Um, I think there'll be lots and lots of interesting things to do. Um, it kind of, you know, in a way it depends like who is, who, what is the media in, in five or 10 years? ESPN's not going to employ that person probably because they're ESPN, right? So if it's a, if it's something that is, you know, if the media becomes largely something that is controlled or, you know, sort of in bed with the leagues, then, you know, that's just not really something that would be terribly interesting to them because they'd be kind of covering themselves in a way. Um, but if we have, you know, something of a vibrant independent media with, with, with news organizations that are new actual news organizations, and that's, that's their job, that's what they do, then I think, that, I think they will do it because, like I said, there are tons of interesting stories to tell. And, and I also think, and also, I'll, I'll leave you with one other thing. I think the beat was created originally. I think you can almost say this across the board because newspapers were very anxious about television. So newspaper sports pages are saying, wait, we owned the first 50 years of you know, America's reading habits. And now television has come along and become so big. And it is essentially, that's where people are going to watch sports for sports news. And they're turning away from us. So we got to go cover that thing, right? That thing that is distracting people from us. It is up to us to cover it and tell you, know, do personality profiles and tell you where it's wrong and tells you when it screws up and all that stuff. 
that problem has not gone away, right? There is still going to be television. There is still going to be streaming services. And there, these are big, we're talking, if we're talking about Amazon and Netflix getting into the sports game, these are gigantic companies. These are companies that absolutely have to be covered and, and, and should be covered and should be looked at with, with great skepticism. So that would be my argument for doing more of it. And I certainly hope we do. Agree with you there. I think there'll always be a level of celebrity. I think people are always going to be interested in who's on their television, their phones uh, in 20 years. Maybe it's just like in your retinas already. I don't know what the technology <laughs> is going to look like. Uh, got some future bets out on it, uh, but I can't guarantee it. There we go. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, you can read him at The Ringer, terrific reporter, writer, and also the co-host of the Press Box podcast with David Shoemaker. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.